The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone out there. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another segment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. As I was listening to the theme song being fed through uh, the airwaves, um, I was noticing that there was a little bit of a disruption in the theme. I don't know if, if uh, even digitally that that uh, broadcast was being a little bit disruptive, uh, disrupted in cyberspace, but uh, people are telling me that it might be time to replace it. Maybe we will. This could be uh, a signal to do that, a signal possibly from the heavens, which brings us into the topic of today's presentation. And uh, what I'm doing today is I am looking at uh, a topic that I would like to eventually expand on this broadcast, and it's the entire question of creationism versus evolution. This is a topic that is timely no matter what, no matter when. And I think in the 21st century, with the emergence of science in such a and technology in such a massive uh, order of magnitude way, we have to sort of start to frame our understanding of science in a more holistic sense. Um, we get very, very drawn out by uh, details and specifics in various areas of technology and uh, the need for even experts and scientists themselves to know about any particular area is so great right now that the entire concept of what we used to call renaissance knowledge, which referred to people and in particular scientists and artists who knew so much about every single field, you were sort of startled by the breadth and the extent of their knowledge. We're running out of those people in the sense that there is so much knowledge right now out there. There is so much information that one has to get a grasp on that the concept of a renaissance person is almost antedated and it's almost becoming a quaint concept in and of itself which is not to say that you're not supposed to know as much as you possibly can 
and about as many topics as you possibly can, but it's simply becoming very difficult to gain a grasp on what you need to know, what you need to master, and how to develop a worldview as a result of that. So I think that, and, and we're going to be discussing this topic and its various offshoots in upcoming broadcasts, but I think what we really do need to do at every once in a while in, in, is to draw things into a more comprehensive perspective and to get at some of the real basics of thinking, cognition, and the formulation of ideas that allow people to progress both uh, theoretically and in terms of the types of conceptual frameworks that they have, as well as material, <clears throat> in other words, to, to push technology forward with sort of an overarching vision, vision and image of what, what it can do. And one of the reasons I say that is we have projects like the Human Genome Project, Artificial Intelligence. These are concepts that are allowing us to control development in ways that were heretofore unimaginable, almost even unimaginable to science fiction writers and, and folks who delved into that mysterious world back up until, say, the 1980s or 1990s when the acceleration of technological advances was just reaching uh, dimensions that we, we, we can't even conceive of at this point. But that being what it is, I think to bring it back to a foundation and to bring it back to basics, we really need to look at this question of creationism and evolution and uh, get back to the fundamentals of how we conceive of who we are and how we reconstruct what we are and where we may, we may be going to. And this is brought on by uh, a YouTube video that I looked at several times. Uh, that engaged a couple of uh, proponents of the evolution-creationism debate who are reasonably well-known, and they were brought in front of a, an audience to argue the various points on their perspectives. The first presenter is a gentleman named Kenneth Ham, who is the founder and head of a place called the Creation Museum, which is in northern Kentucky, and he was debating... Uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Nye, who probably many of you know as the science guy. And he is one of the most masterful presenters of science um, in terms of being able to make scientific concepts and sort of thread together science uh, on the most fundamental level and at a level where people can start to put together ideas and concepts. Uh, Mr. Ham, uh, on the other hand, is, is a creationist, unabashedly creationist, and he actually is a very articulate individual and allows for um, introducing scientific concepts into what I might consider a more confined space of, uh, or a more confined perspective that sort of takes science to explain technology and to look at it in the sense of how things work are something, uh, how things work really is a possibility that can be done as an, as an exercise that one can perfect by using science. However, what struck me about this discussion was a, a concept that actually Mr. Ham 
the creationist put in a very, very beautifully laid out scenario. And the scenario was, and this is something that I certainly have never really explored, is you have to differentiate what's called observational science with what he calls historical science. And it's an interesting concept, concept uh, conceptual, conceptually, excuse me, it's an interesting concept because it gives you a mental template for how to view science and where it starts, where it stops. According to Mr. Ham, um, basically, science essentially begins, and I'm paraphrasing, and I'm sure he would give me a reasonable argument against this. Science begins at the point in which you can observe things and where you can use measurement and explanation, explication, and um, the interaction of how various dimensions of experimentation allow you to get from A to B and to explain phenomena like electricity, uh, antibiotics, uh, to some degree human behavior, brain function, and obviously once you get into technology, the various ways in which technologies work. And it stops. It stops at a certain point where you're not allowed to, where you can no longer observe, and where you can't observe uh, that he's calling historical science, and this is where it gets murky, because you can't trace these developments that far back to the point of, obviously, creation and the developments of uh, advances that we simply don't have a functional record of and that we can't look at. So if we can look at it, if we can see it, and if we can explain it in those terms, then we're good. But once we start to look at um, older developments, geology, and of course what I'm getting to is archaeology, then everything is open to broader explanation. And the impression one gets here is that... Um, we have to we have to get to a certain point where if we don't have the concrete information to look at it, uh, then it's open to suspicion and the development and the phenomena that archaeologists or geologists are dealing with are phenomena that you can't explain because you weren't there to see them. And it's an interesting argument, and it's one I think sustains a whole lot of people. Uh, I don't think most people are as educated as Mr. Ham is, because he is uh, trained as a scientific person, and he kept making reference in this debate that he had with Bill Nye about um, the number of scientists who are actually creationists, but are simply individuals who took what they could observe physically and turned them into magnificent inventions and concepts. For example, the gentleman who invented the MRI is a creationist. And I have no reason to doubt him. Now, one of the interesting phenomena of his presentation was that he kept citing individuals who um, were scientists who uh, ascribed their mental templates to the creationist school. Now, of course, you wouldn't work it the other way because obviously the preponderance of thinking is that most scientists do believe in the concept of evolution, origin of species, and permutations, mutations, and uh, systematic evolution of species, etc. Of course, we can't do that because I would 
I venture to say that probably 95% of scientists belong to the evolution camp. On the other hand, Mr. Bill Nye makes a very excellent point that right now, according to him and probably according to very many people who live um, in the United States and other countries, uh, there are people who have a spiritual side to them, and they certainly do not deny the possibilities of evolution in the broader sense. They take tremendous comfort in spirituality and in various concepts or offshoots of traditional religion, and I don't think that there is anyone out there who can deny that the Bible or the Quran, or the various Gitas in, in Hindu religions are not important pieces of literature. They clearly are, not only because their influence is spread so extensively, but that they're documents that register and record information that, believe it or not, we can, cannot observe. And so this takes us back into this unusual feedback loop as to what's observational science, what's historical science, and the records themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there are ways to actually expand this argument in many, many directions and to explain a variety of different natural and scientific phenomena from the various perspectives that are brought on by one school or the other. And archaeology, of course, is a nexus of these interpretations because if you look at the traditional Bible, you will see very, very broad indications that um, the events that are formally laid out in the Old and the New Testament are actually events that are accountable and demonstrable in the archaeological record. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that as I advance forward. But I think the real short circuit in this argument is that the creationist school essentially says, if you can't see it, if you can't replicate it, and if it doesn't mean anything that you can use going forward physically, then you have to account for a certain measure of doubt. And that measure of doubt, if you can't figure it out, is something that would be of divine nature. Now, what you run into a problem here, of course, is when you're starting to talk about the concept of uniformitarianism and the fact that um, things that are occurring now also occurred in the past. Now, that's an interesting concept and one that is open to a lot of interpretation. I think that's one of the keys uh, to this discrepancy between the worldview of the creationists and the evolutionists. The creationists will effectively tell you that if you can't observe it, it's not real. The scientists, the evolutionists, uh, evolutionary biologists, and the broad range of sciences, scientists who are involved in the dominant paradigm are the ones who say, well, yes, there's a uniform 
method of there's a uniform series of phenomena and events and there can be disruptions in the system and what the scientists are doing is they are trying to account for the disruptions in the system they're trying to discuss the breaks in the system and why they occurred and I think when I heard this discussion between these two very well-spoken individuals, that was one of the concepts that I felt was lacking in terms of explanation and in terms of trying to reconstruct how the world works according to, um, according to each school. Now, in a sense, in a sense, and I'll get back to this later, the creationist school has something here. Because what they're telling you is if you can't see it, it's conjecture. So the task and the hard work of doing the explaining when there's an inconsistency in the record is something that is the job of the scientists. Personally, as a person who obviously believes very ardently in evolution, um, I think that a very well-composed argument can be made, and I'm sure it's been generated by a lot of people better informed on these things than I am, you can obviously demonstrate numerous instances where um, disruptions in the regularity of the life cycle uh, have occurred. I don't think there's any question about that. And Stephen Jay Gould, among many other experts, developed a very masterful theory of mutation and evolution, which sort of a series of quantum leaps and plateaus uh, in which you explain the major events in the evolutionary paradigm. What they're saying essentially is that adaptation to environment, and I'm talking about the human career and, and general organic evolution of, of upper and lower species, is simply the fact that there are long periods of gradual adaptation and then all of a sudden there are mutations in the record. Of course, this is genetically demonstrable and we've seen it because the life cycle and the history of the human uh, career is so long that we have seen punctuated periods of development that disrupt the gradual the gradual arc and the gradual uh, emergence of systematic events. So that uh, the the uh, the burden of proof, in a sense, does fall on the scientists. How far can you go? How many of these disruptions uh, can you? argue for and can you actually chronicle you can you actually chronicle the ways and the and the timelines for which you can make these explanations and i think it's been done many many times obviously um too numerous to elaborate and we'll talk about them going forward but I think one of the real keys in this argument is the entire question of time. And that was one of the unanimously, I won't say unanimously, it's, it was one of the more ubiquitous issues that came up. Well, how do you explain time? And we'll talk about time, science, and creation, and evolution when we return right after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with an episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I have taken it upon myself sort of as a, uh, a matter of introducing some of the topics that we're going to be addressing going forward. The question of creationism and evolution, I think that in this magnificent 21st century that we've entered into, um, we are looking at technological and scientific developments that have not been uh, equated in terms of their magnitude and impact since the early part of the 20th century. And I've been around long enough to look at technological and scientific innovation uh, in historical perspective. And if I consider that, I've often discussed with various associates that in my own personal judgment that the developments uh, between the terminal part of the 19th century and the uh, first 20 or 30 years of the uh, 20th century, certainly before I was born, were probably the most monumental changes in, uh, in, 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 in several 
decade, not just decades, but in centuries. And I, I say that because between, say, 1890 and 1920, we had such marvelous developments and inventions as electricity, the telephone, radio, uh, the car, the automobile, flying, uh, movies, and this is all past the age of the telegraph. These are about seven or eight inventions that have fashioned and revolutionized the uh, the way human organization works and and our ability to survive. Antibiotics um, and medicines, all those developments in that cluster. Now, maybe not antibiotics, but certainly in that cluster of years for about a 30 or to 40 year period was monumental. I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s, and yes, there were advances, but they were not on the order of magnitude that revolutionized the world uh, as, as that period. And, and again, if I can just diverge for a minute, uh, I, I'm very, very uh, impressed by uh, an exhibit I saw at Gettysburg about uh, 20, it was about 15, 20 years ago, um, where they had, uh, sometime in the early 1930s, um, shortly after the beginning of the Roosevelt administration, a reunion of, believe it or not, Civil War veterans um, at Gettysburg. Uh, and one of the commemorations at that national park, and they actually had Civil War veterans. And when I walked into the exhibit, I was stunned by the fact that there were actually Civil War veterans around in the 1930s. And if you think about it, um, there clearly were not very many of them, but you figure that somebody who was born, I mean, the Civil War soldiers in many cases were children. They were 12, they were 13 in many, many cases. If they were born, say, in 1854 or something like that, and they managed to survive into their 70s um, and and possibly into their 80s, and there were certainly some who didn't. These are people who grew up, on average, never going beyond five to seven miles away from their home. There were no refrigerators then. Uh, there were no automobiles. They uh, moved around on horses and buggies. And then all of a sudden, by the time they went to this convention, there were movies, there was radio, there, was, uh, there were airplanes, there were trains, there were changes. Uh, the news got by, got passed so quickly that it was a simply a change in order of magnitude of how people lived and, and, and lifeways were so absolutely different because of these advances in commerce and industry and transportation and dispersal of events uh, through the media. Um, in the 50s and 60s, of course, there were advances as well, but they were incremental. So we're still watching TV, for example. We're still watching movies, albeit with, with much greater um, sophistication. Uh, we do have computers, which certainly is a major event. But now at the end of the 21st of the 20th century and, and kicking into the 21st century, I think we're getting to points in our history where, again, we're seeing sort of a quantum leap in technology and science 
science that uh, that is almost not quite. I don't think it's it's quite there on an order of magnitude with what happened between 1890 and 1920. But that that's a little bit of a diversion. All I'm saying is that there's so much information and there's so much knowledge that we have to kind of get back and look at it in, in, in the grander sense. And when we look at the evolution argument that that I've been talking about, um, the grand impressions, and, and this is where archaeology comes in, the grand impressions that uh, religionists, if you want to call them uh, in, in, in some kind of a compartmentalized sense, Things basically start between 6,000 and 4,000 years ago. Um, if we look at the biblical calendars, they're at 57, 5,800, uh, according to the, to, to the Jewish calendar. That's where we are looking at things. Um, that's, uh, that's when basically the biblical events emerge, the ones that are certainly within the realm of, let's just call it, for lack of a better word, um, developing some kind of data that can be looked at. Um, and and they, again, irrespective of how you stand on the question of creationism uh, and and evolution, uh, the uh, Mr. Ham's position on historical science, well, you could take it that far back. And one of the reasons that you can do all of this is that the archaeological record starts to mushroom in this particular part. Of, of the human career. We're talking uh, at about, let's say, 6,000 years ago. And when you do the type of work that I do with a lot of uh, other scientists, um, one of the things that we notice is that around 6,000 years ago, environments all over the world started to stabilize. And that stabilization in environments produced major, major changes in the human career. About 3,000 BC or 5,000 years ago, again, contemporaneous with the period in which um, biblical events are taking place, we are seeing, for example, events like the development of cities, the growth of cities in the Middle East, the growth of certain urban centers in the Far East, uh, Egypt, the major centers of development, and more importantly than that, the emergence of complex societies and societies that interacted with one another over short and long distances. And this started to become a not just a regional phenomena, but an extra-regional ph phenomena. For one example, of course, is that around 5,000 years ago in North America, we had the emergence of the late archaic traditions where we're starting to see the foundations, not necessarily of, of villages, but certainly very well-organized small hamlets. And these developments are paralleled, as I said, obviously, in... in uh, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt in a very strong sense, and uh, farther to the east in the Indus Valley where the Harappan culture took hold at approximately the same time. We also have, if we speak to specialists, interaction between these regions. So something massive is going on over here. So it stands to reason that biblical accounts the big books would occur at this period when literacy, when writing was invented, when societies started to be significantly ad advanced technologically, when we passed formally, if you will, and a lot of people argue these things, but let's put it in some basic, in, into some basic terms, when we passed from 
at least in many, many areas, from a hunter-gatherer society into complex societies with networking, trade, commerce, and an understanding, uh, an order of magnitude higher of, of how the environment and world around us works. And so it stands to reason that the conflation of writing and this, this, this order of magnitude change in human organizations, social organization and economies, again, looking at an evolutionary model, this would be one of those quantum leaps that we're talking about if we want to factor this into the grand theory of some kind of an evolutionary model. This was a major change so that the volumes and the books and the Bible itself took root at that time. Now, if the Bible took root at that time, there is a reason for it, and I think those are the reasons. And if we want to really make this an open and shut case, then we simply look at the fact that this is the Bronze Age. This is a period not only, as I said, where there are complex developments in society, but also where we have um, dating materials that will tell us that this convergence and this Key, uh, key development in complex societies will take us to this jumping off point where um, the circumstances in many parts of the world, but most specifically in the in areas, were appropriate for uh, the the growth of ur of uh, urban societies and complex societies. So that that is really when. According to the uh, creationists, that's when we can start to get a record. Well, that is in fact true. But um, what they are saying is that things that happened before then are not available to us. And that's where it becomes spec speculative, and that's where it's called historical science. Now, we do have a variety of different dating techniques, so that one of the key elements here when you want to raise this question of evolution and creationism is simply, how old is it? The creationists basically do not believe in radiocarbon dating or the utility of the huge numbers of dating techniques that we have in front of us now. Thermoluminescence dating, uh, opt optically stimulated luminescence dating as well, potassium argon, uranium thorium dating, a variety of different techniques that extend the conventionally accepted parameters of dating by orders of magnitude. They do not buy it. And one of the reasons they don't buy it is because they will find exceptions to the rule. And I think, uh, I don't know that this is something that they mobilize to do, um, but certainly there's a valid point that there have been advances in radiocarbon dating, which I think is the most important one for, this for purposes of this particular argument. Um, there have been massive and, and significant improvements and advances in this technique, and they will simply point to an exception and say, we have many, many cases in which older materials are found above younger materials. This is not 
uh, a situation that was brought up in this argument that that I'm discussing. It's just just sort of a a natural follow-up to that. And uh, in archaeological circles and in many other geological and uh, and other scientific circles, these issues are brought up. And in almost every single case, there is a very reasonable explanation for why these things occur. And one of them, of course, is the dynamism of the environment in which we measure these uh, these particular or radio radiometric techniques? We can, for example, explain older materials overlying younger materials simply because of movement in the earth. Water will redeposit materials that have burned or decomposed earlier and simply move them downstream into a layer which is technically younger but contains older material that was transported. And in most cases, if not, well, the majority of cases, we can demonstrate that because we can demonstrate by a variety of other techniques that a certain type of deposit or a certain type of sediment from a floodplain is more recent than another one. So that the anomaly of the older date is simply explained by the fact that it was degraded many, many tens, hundreds, thousands of years earlier and redeposit downstream. We call it the old carbon effect. And the same is true of geological phenomena. So that one of the cases uh, that was argued in this program was uh, they were finding a basaltic deposit that was very, very young in something in something that was extent, uh, ostensibly millions of years old. And of course, there are so many explanations, especially over the course of time when um, sediments are mobilized and they simply fall out in a different place and uh, they disturb the integrity. So, for example, in a case like this, where this exception is found, it's your homework and your assignment to figure out why. And we've done that. There are also a variety of different signals that will um, tell you um, that there is an anomaly. Our measurement strategies aren't always perfect. But if you look at the march of technology through time, you will see invariably that one of the beauties of science is the need for explanation, explanation, and explanation in progressively more systematic ways. So that um, we do find certainly many anomalies. Uh, radiocarbon dating was invented in the 1950s, and uh, there were, of course, very many anomalies. But what struck people as very significant about the decay of carbon and its relationship to uh, to the various isotopes of carbon, which is what accounts for uh, half-life and uh, essentially calibrating and measuring radiocarbon ages, is that we're originally able to check it against records from the Bible, which told us that certain d biblical events are of a certain age, and lo and behold, they were coincident with that. And when it didn't happen, we looked at various uh, caliber we, we looked at various anomalies in the radiocarbon record and we started to look at what could possibly go wrong and how our um, atomic measurements and radiometric measurements could have been affected by a variety of different types of factors and what are we looking at and, and, and without getting into grand details we are able to explain this and we're not explaining it away but we are explaining the processes 
the processes that account for these disturbances. So when somebody on the other side of the equation will, will ask you, well, why do we have so many different determinations for a certain, uh, certain geological layer? There are so many explanations for it. For example, in the case of radiocarbon dating, you're dating different things in different places. However, they tend to converge. When you measure a fraction of one particular deposit and get a date that's a little bit different, you know that you're measuring a different component of that deposit. And uh, we have understood, and over the past 20, 30 years, our ability to calibrate and to specify the techniques that we use and to uh, index them to what what we're trying to measure is enormously successful and has advanced in great, great, in, in, in a large measure because of the refinement of techniques of measurement and because of the understanding of process. So uh, when somebody says, well, that's, that's just historical science and, and you can't prove it, the fact of the matter is the deeper you dig, the more you know. And that, I think, comes to the core of what the difference is between the creationist and the evolutionary schools. And it's becoming increasingly more important because as we get into an age of specialization, we start to lose focus. And we start to lose, uh, not lose focus um, in, in the generic sense, but we lose focus on the grand picture. And when we want to understand science, we have to look at the importance of scientific and how it ultimately explains the nature of things in a grand way, not just in terms of the specifics. And we get into this murky stuff where um, we sort of get lost in our own research because we don't look at the big picture. And I'll have something to say about that when we come back. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. 
This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Joe Schulnerine. We're back with uh, another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is uh, evolution versus creationism and uh, sort of a new twist to it uh, because of um, the amazing technological advances that we're seeing in this early part of the 21st century. I'm trying to look at some of the roots and foundations of sort of an up tempo debate on creationism and evolution. Uh, The uh, kickoff for me on this particular discussion was a YouTube video that I had seen um, from that pitted uh, Bill Nye, who many of you know as the science guy, who's a marvelous um, purveyor of of, uh, scientific information and brings it down to basics and is just a brilliant teacher and uh, offers just a wonderful, wonderful series of explanations on how science works. Um, Also, if you listen to him, I was kind of amazed by this, but I didn't know that he was a student of Carl Sagan's until he started saying billions and billions. And I said, this guy has a Carl Sagan connection, and he was, in fact, a student of Carl Sagan's at Cornell. But that's that's another story. and he had a debate with a fellow named uh, Mr. Ken Ham, who is a founder of a place called the Creationist Museum. And Mr. Ham, to his credit, offered a variety of very interesting arguments about evolution <coughs> and creationism, excuse me. And, and it really does come down to uh, the question of, at some point, do you believe or do you not believe? And uh, one of the things and one of the elements that Mr. Ham cited that I simply couldn't believe and many people couldn't believe was this entire question of Noah's Ark, where if you read the biblical accounts, uh, you see that essentially 14,000 species of animals were brought onto this ark that was the size of several football fields. Um, and was basically being run by a few individuals, and you're just wondering how can any of this have been possible in uh, the time frame that he's talking about, which was clearly some time before 4,000 to 6,000 years ago. And his explanation, if you boil it all down, is you just got to believe because there's no other explanation for it. And those of you who have listened to my program 
over the years uh, will be familiar with this story that, uh, not story, but this experience that, that I'm going to recount. Um, I was very fortunate to, uh, in my graduate career, uh, when I did my PhD on Middle Eastern settlements and uh, environmental changes, one of the items that was brought to my attention as a graduate student was this entire question of uh, the emergence of the city-states in southern Mesopotamia. Um, I was actually hired uh, as a graduate student where uh, I absolutely needed the money, as many of you could probably imagine, poor student. Um, I was brought on by one of my professors to look at the geology of one of the earliest city-states called Nippur in Iraq. And as I looked at it, and as I was asked to research this issue, because I am a person who looks at geological questions in archaeology, um, the uh, professor said, look, we have this very interesting geological and archaeological sequence. And, and what that means is you have geological layers, you have archaeological layers. Uh, geological layers are laid down by natural events like flooding, wind activity, slope erosion, those sediments, and archaeological deposits, which largely contain many artifacts and represent the debris of human occupation. And very often there is one on top of the other. And uh, when you have geological deposits uh, covered by archaeological deposits, buried by more geological deposits and covered by new archaeological deposits, then you have what we call a sequence that allows you to relate natural events to human occupations and, and human events. And uh, when these things happen in the Middle East, where the Bible sort of is acknowledged to have been written and assembled, this becomes a very interesting question. So one of the phenomena that was noticed in uh, some, by some of the earlier work that was done in the tw early 20th century by folks who did, uh, did some of the earliest archaeological excavations in the earliest city-states in southern Mesopotamia was the fact that there was a very thick layer of what looked like sterile or uh, not humanly affected um, sediments that uh, seemed to emerge in a variety of the city-states up and down the Tigris and Euphrates River. And so you would look like at what I was talking about, archaeological deposits of a certain thickness, geological departments of a certain thickness, and then all of a sudden there's this relatively thick deposit of... of uh, sterile dirt, and what I mean by sterile is there's no or very little archaeological material in there, and it seemed to have been everywhere in most of the city-states along the Tigris-Euphrates. And when, when we looked at that, and I ran a variety of different tests to determine that these were effectively uh, floodplain deposits that we're not only burying the evidence of previous occupations that were associated with the third millennium BC, but and earlier, but these were inordinately thick deposits. And when you look at them and you compare them with uh, de geological depart uh, deposits from elsewhere, they are clearly flood deposits. They are representative 
of a major flooding event. And when you see that kind of deposit and that series of deposits replicated along the entire drainage, along the entire Tigris-Euphrates system, or at least major parts of it, then you come to the realization that this was a massive flood event. And radiocarbon dating established that it was around um, 4,000 4000 BC, 4 to 3,000 BC, somewhere in that area. And when we looked at it and found its, its location in various parts of that part of the world, it became very clear that this was a flood on a very massive scale. It would be almost like saying, uh, say, about two or three hundred years from now, if people looked at similar types of deposits, albeit much more complex, in, in this part of the world, in, in, in the Northeast, that would be sort of a signature for something like Hurricane Sandy. And it's just a very distinctive event that was more than just localized. It had regional and even possibly extra-regional connotations. So as we looked at that, um, the question that he posed to me could, is, could that be a flood? And I said, sure, it, it could be a flood. It probably is a flood. And not only was it a flood, it was a flood of monumental proportions. And the way I look at something like that, and the way I put it together, is this was approximately of the time that the earliest creation myths, according to the scientific and radiocarbon records, and the literary records across the various culture zones of the Middle East, say that this is approximately the time that the creation myth emerged in the Hebrew liturgy. Um, maybe not at that time, it was, might not have been written down, but certainly in, in, in the Sumerian um, world, it was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And these, these stories have um, such generic affinity with one another that it would be impossible not to link them together. And when they describe this event at that time, the only logical conclusion that one can draw is that this was a flood of monumental proportions. It probably affected the stability of the complex societies that were forming at that time. It probably caused massive destructions uh, and, and displacements of populations at a time when cities were getting started. And it would have produced a pretty chaotic effect or at least a very at the very least a very monumental effect for the entire region and beyond and the only logical explanation for this is that this is the type of event that would have been recorded in oral histories and the earliest written histories of the middle east i don't see any viable explanation for it other than that and I would suggest that if you look at the roots of the Bible in overall context and link them, link, link these roots to natural and historic events, you come up with an explanation that is not in the very least far-fetched and one that seems to, seems to really carry a fair amount of weight. And I've always likened it when I explain this sort of thing to, to people in schools and, 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 and kids, that it's like the game of telephone. 
um, it, it changes its meaning to, you know, there was a flood in Nippur um, several thousand years ago. And with time, as the legend grows, because it was so monumental, then it worked its way to by biblical times. Around that time, it became this enormous flood when a religion was starting to emerge as, as one of the, as, and the Bible emerged as the massive literary piece of that time frame. And my guess is that these are the type of episodes that the Bible tells us about. And if we look at all these pieces of information, accounts of war that are, literary, that are documented in stela and in monuments across the Middle East, this, the Bible is essentially an amalgam of these stories. And I think that when we start to talk about creationism, evolution, with from the scientific perspective, and we get back to this question that I was saying, historical science. Historical science is really nothing more than digging very, very deeply into the archaeological records, the geological records that we have, and assembling this information and using anthropology to understand how humans respond and how the human career is fashioned. Um, if we look at complex societies today, we know that, for example, events in history seem to be more magnified now than they probably were at the time that they occurred. It's not to say that there weren't very major events in our history, but those of us who have actually lived through them understand that they weren't quite the way they're being positioned right now. So that some of the events that we've actually li lived through uh, probably se will seem 20, 30 years down the road as, as being very, very different than they actually were and what they meant to the people who will actually live through it. So my suggestion is that we, if we look at this entire explanation of science versus creationism, we have to dig deeper. That's what scientists do. They dig deeper. They simply cannot dismiss anything that they don't understand as being historical science or being something that is not explained in terms of processes that we have going on today. Yes, they are. There are very, very complex problems in science that we have been able to unravel because we dig deeper. And so the answer is dig deeper. Do not accept. And on that note, I'd like to close the program and invite you all to come back next week and listen to another episode of Indiana Jones' Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And the myth and the reality is the issue that we discussed today, and there's more to come. Thank you, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones' Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.